Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. We are thrilled to have everybody here with us this morning. We'll continue our study in Acts today. If you want to turn to Acts 26 here this morning, if you need a Bible, there's extras there in the back. Uh, welcome to our visitors this morning. We're thrilled to have you here. Pray that you're ministered to today. And if you have any questions at all about our service afterward, please don't hesitate to let us know. We have a saying here at Calvary Chapel that the first time you're a visitor, the second time you're family. And we truly do feel that way and hope that you do as well. And so we're thrilled to have you here today. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to the Word. Acts 26. So this is getting exciting. If you guys haven't been excited, I have been. And hopefully some of my excitement has rubbed off because, I mean, it's just every chapter, it seems like it's just getting better and better and better. And here we're learning more about this amazing man named Paul. And of course, we're nearing the end of the book of Acts. We've only got three chapters left. We'll get through chapter 26 today. I anticipate that including today, we've only got three Sundays left in the book of Acts, which some of you may be thinking, praise God, we're ready to move to a new book. Some of you may be thinking, oh, you know, I want more from this book of Acts, but it'll be over a year that it's taken us to get through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept. It's a very exciting thing. And today, we'll be picking back up with Paul's testimony before King Agrippa. And so here in Acts 26, remember, Paul is standing before Festus, who is the governor in Caesarea, His region covers Jerusalem, and then with him is also King Agrippa. Does anybody know who King Agrippa is? There's a relation to Herod here. Anybody ever heard of Herod before? All right. And so King Agrippa is actually, I believe, his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who was responsible for the murder of children when Jesus was born. He has a grandfather who is responsible for John the Baptist, taking the head of John the Baptist. He's got an uncle who's responsible for the persecution and imprisonment of Peter. And so here, King Agrippa is one that Paul might rightly say, I don't know how I feel about this guy. He might not like me very much. But as we'll see, Paul is very bold before him. And we know this, and we know that Paul is bold because... Paul has an understanding that God's hand is upon him. That Paul has been brought to this very place and time for this purpose. Paul's an individual who understands God's plan and purpose for his life. And so we'll see here today, Paul, he'll recount a little bit of his testimony, his conversion story, and then we'll see him very boldly challenge the king to believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you would just agree with me in prayer as we go to the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Lord, what a privilege it is that we get to gather here in this place to do so freely, come together and worship, to study your Word. What a privilege it is, Lord, and I pray that we'd not take it for granted. And Lord, I ask that your Spirit would move here in our midst today, that there would be a willingness on each of us, Lord, to receive what you have for us, to say, Lord, you are welcome here, Say, I am ready to receive what you have for me, that we would have a heart that desires to know and to learn and to grow today in our knowledge of you and in our knowledge of your word. And so, Lord, through your spirit, transform, Lord, our hearts and minds here today that we leave here different and more in love with you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this is the thing here, that one of the things that we should note about Paul is that he is a man who is sold out for Jesus Christ. He is a man who absolutely understands his calling, his purpose. And we'll see him declare that so boldly throughout the Word here today. And we'll start here in Acts 26. And if you remember from last week, we didn't have much from Paul. We didn't hear Paul say many things in 25. Rather, we saw Festus, who was new to his role. He had taken over as governor from Felix. And Festus was somewhat confounded with what to do with Paul. He had the Jews who were still, even after two years, so intent on taking his life. Yet he thought, rightly, that Paul was an innocent man. He couldn't figure out what it was that Paul had done. Yet Paul had appealed to go before Caesar, and Festus had a responsibility, if he was going to send a prisoner to Caesar, that he needed to say what the man had done. There needed to be charges against him, yet he couldn't determine what those charges would be. And so there was this conundrum on the part of Festus of trying to figure out, what am I going to do with this guy? Unfortunately, he wasn't bold enough to stand against the Jews to say, this is an innocent man, and I'm going to let him go. And so he's seeking some wisdom from King Agrippa, asking Agrippa, hey, help me figure this out. And Agrippa says, yes, I'll hear him. But one of the key things that Festus describes to Agrippa as he's explaining what he's going to hear from Paul is he says, this man talks about someone by the name of Jesus Christ. And it gives us an indication that though Paul could have come before Festus and argued for his freedom and declared that he was an innocent man and should have been let go, Paul did not focus on that. What Paul focused on was the opportunity he had to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see hearts and minds transformed. And that will continue here in 26. And we read in chapter 26, verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, saying in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. And so here he is standing before King Agrippa, relative of Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa I and the Second, who had such a history of persecution and hate towards, really in many cases, both Jews, but also especially Christians. And yet Paul here says that he is happy. I am happy to stand before you today, King Agrippa, to defend myself, to speak for myself about these things. And now, to a degree here, we see a formal greeting on the part of Paul. And we got to understand this. Here Paul is addressing a king and a governor. And when Agrippa had come into the auditorium there, there was great pomp that he had brought people with him. There were banners. There was an entourage. And so this is quite a display that's been made before Paul. It would have been easy to see that there were very important officials that he was addressing. And so here he says that I'm happy to be standing before you. Further, he recognizes Agrippa as one who's an expert in dealing with these matters. And truly, Agrippa would have been. He had a lot of knowledge of the Jews, of the customs. He would have even known of Jesus Christ, of his death, and his claimed resurrection as Agrippa would have seen it. And so Paul says, I'm happy. I'm happy to be standing before you. Why? Why would Paul be happy? You have to understand, and you can look this up, 
If you wanted on the internet, you could say Paul standing before Agrippa and people had made renderings, paintings of this. And in every one, you'll see Paul chained to a Roman guard. Paul was a prisoner. In the midst of great royalty, here Paul comes in who's been in prison for two years, chained to a guard, and he says, I'm happy? Sometimes we wake up on a beautiful morning and it's a difficult thing for us to say we're happy in our own homes in a comfortable bed. We're so driven by emotion, but here Paul says, I'm happy. Why? Because Paul was experiencing here the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose in his life. No doubt Paul had remembered at his conversion being told that he was a chosen servant of God, that he would go before Gentiles, kings, and rulers. And here now Paul is standing before a king ready to proclaim the gospel. And he's thinking, I am so stinking excited about this. This is a moment that God has prepared me for. He was so in tune with what God wanted to do in his life, and it was a wonderful thing. And then Paul asks him to be patient as he shares. And it's funny that he asks him, bear with me, essentially. Be patient. Why? Because in verse 4 he says, my manner of life from my youth. See, this is the equivalent. Some of you may have had the experience like I had in my past corporate life of interviewing people. And you know, it was always funny when you would start to interview somebody and you'd say, tell me a little bit about yourself. And they'd start to say, well, I was born in, and you'd think, oh, this is going to be a really long interview. Going back to the very beginning. And sometimes you'd prompt them to, you can speed it up a little bit. How about the last couple years? What have you been doing? And this is almost an element of what happens here with Paul. And this is, in fact, one of Paul's longest sermons that we have in the text. As he says, from my youth. So be patient with me, King Agrippa. But from the very beginning, from my youth, he says in verse 4, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, my accusers know that from my youth, I was there amongst them. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul says here, from my youth I've lived the strictest life. From my youth I've been amongst those in Jerusalem, trained, built up, prepared for ministry, if you will, as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, I was with them. And he gets a little jab in here at them where he says, if they were willing to testify, you'd know this. Essentially saying, here I am accused by them, standing trial before you, but they're not even here to testify against me. That's a good point that Paul has. And he says that throughout, he lived a strict life as a Pharisee, having the same hope the same hope as those who are accusing him of a Messiah. The difference is, they didn't expect their Messiah to come as a suffering servant in Jesus Christ. Even though he fulfilled over 300 prophecies, they didn't expect him to come the way that he did. They didn't expect to see him the way that he was seen. They didn't expect that he would die a criminal on a cross. But Paul is saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I've believed in the same promises as all of them. And here now I am simply proclaiming that the promise has been fulfilled, that He has come. 
yet they're struggling again with the fact that their Messiah would have been crucified and resurrected. And Paul says in verse 8, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? And this is a great question that he's putting before King Agrippa. And maybe it was a great question that some of you had to wrestle with at some point, or maybe it's something that you're still wrestling with today. This idea that someone could be resurrected from the dead. That Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior who died, who suffered, who was buried and rose again. But why do we think what God can do is just too incredible to be real? Why do we look around at the world in which we live and often want to give it up to chance to suggest that it came from a big bang or some sort of primordial ooze that developed into individuals who can come together on a Sunday morning who can look at one another and have dialogue and to show emotion? Is that not incredible? It's foolishness sometimes to think that creation came from some of the things that it was supposedly developed from. And even here, Paul now standing before King Agrippa, essentially saying to him, why do you think it would be incredible that God could raise someone from the dead? Because you didn't simply see it firsthand with your own eyes, and so because of that, it's not happened? Verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now he begins to recognize, listen, I was there as a member of the Sanhedrin, as a Pharisee. I too thought at that point, that it couldn't be. Jesus Christ couldn't have been the fulfillment, and so I began to persecute them as well. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I too at first thought I must persecute those who believe in Jesus. And he did. He imprisoned them. He put them to death. He says he cast his vote against them. That gives us confirmation that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he would have given a vote to say yes, imprison them, put them to death. We know that he presided over the first martyrdom, Stephen, as they cast stones and killed him. He even caused them to blaspheme for some to reject their belief in Jesus Christ. And most scholars agree, and it's speculation, I suppose, but Paul had great regret over that specifically, that he had caused some to blaspheme. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had a, a keen awareness of the man that he was, the things that he had done. Those who were imprisoned, those who died, he could be confident of where they were, that they withstood the test of their faith. But what of those who he forced to blaspheme? And, and how exactly did he go about doing it? What was it that he did to these people, causing them to renounce their faith? And what of them? Did they return? What happened to those individuals? This, in many ways, we speculate, haunted Paul. Now, most of us don't have such a testimony as Paul, but we have regret. Those who know and are walking with the Lord today, sometimes you may think about your past, the things that you've done, the things that you were guilty of, the way in which you maybe treated people, things you wish you could go and take back. It's difficult when we consider our lives before Christ. But remember what Paul said following that in verse 10 in chapter 15, but 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. Paul recognized, I am what I am. And there's nothing I can do about those things in my past, but rather I can look forward and trust and know that I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he said, what God has done in me, it won't be in vain. Why? Because he was going to commit himself fully and wholeheartedly to it. He said, someone died for me. The Son of God died for me. And I will make sure that that was not in vain. I will give my life to Him. I will surrender everything to Him. I will consider myself blessed and happy to be in chains standing before a king and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Christian, it's about grace. We need to make sure that we don't get stuck in regret and in the past, but that we look forward and ensure that as Paul did, that God's grace is not in vain and instead put forth great effort in serving Him and doing His work. That is something that in light of the Gospel we should all feel compelled to do is to give ourselves wholly over to Him. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 12, the beginning of the chapter, but that I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, in view of the fact that He didn't give you what you deserved, that He could have required your life from you because we are guilty. But He didn't do that. He showed us mercy. And so in light of that, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service. That as believers, we should look at that and think that if I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, then it's reasonable for me to say, Lord, I'm going to give you my whole life. Whatever you want from me, it's yours. Wherever that takes me, whatever it requires, though it may be difficult, though it may be challenging, though yes, the Word very much promises us that there will be trials and tribulation, there will be challenges that we will face, then in the midst of all of that we say, Lord, I'm Yours. Whatever You want, that God's grace would not be in vain. And so this is Paul. This is us understanding who this man was, and he was an example to us. Paul had the boldness to say, I wish you were as me as I am. Follow my instruction. Be like me. And now here in verses 12 through 18, Paul recounts his conversion. And we'll move through this fairly quickly here. This is something we hear three times in the book of Acts. And Paul says, While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus, he's still telling King Agrippa of how he persecuted greatly the church. He journeyed to Damascus and with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king. And again, notice he's addressing the king here. Though the room is full of people, he is talking to the king. Along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a clear vision the Lord gives to Paul here as he gets a hold of his life. 
And you see, this is the work of the gospel that's being described to Paul. This is from the Lord Jesus communicating to Paul, and this is what the gospel is, that it turns people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. We must never forget that the lost are in darkness. And because of that, they're not in neutral territory. You either belong to Satan or you belong to God. We need to recognize that. Because sometimes I think we can get comfortable thinking that somebody can sort of be in this in-between place. Because why? Because we see so many good people. We encounter many people that we think, man, you know, they're not a believer. In fact, they may even say they don't really believe in God at all, but yet they're good people. And you can have a good conversation with them. And they're friendly. And see, that's one of the reasons too why we need to be careful that we don't sort of polarize and demonize anybody who doesn't proclaim to be a Christian thinking that you know they're running around casting spells on people. No. There's good, well-intentioned, wonderful people that are perishing because they have this idea that can just sort of be in this neutral area. But the reality is, if you don't belong to God, you belong to Satan. And this sounds foolish to some. It sounds foolish to some because we can't see it. It sounds foolish to some people to talk about this idea of Satan being at work and they think of this guy with a pitchfork and a red suit. And they think that's a Halloween costume, not a real thing. And so it does. It sounds foolish, but that's why we also need to understand that just as they're in darkness, as it says here in verse 18, that their eyes need to be opened. They don't see. It is foolishness to them. It doesn't make sense. But what Paul is recognizing here is that he was one who was called to proclaim the gospel that would help people to see and to know through the power of the Spirit that they were blind, that they were in darkness, that they were in need of forgiveness. Paul, again, had an understanding of what he was called to and how he was to live. He had an understanding of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it had changed his own life. And because it changed his, and because he knew then as a believer what he was called to, he wanted to share that with other people. We must take that same thing very seriously. Because as Paul says in verse 19, therefore, King of but because of this, because of this experience that I had on the road to Damascus, because of what the Lord told me and showed me, I wasn't disobedient to it. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. God told me what I needed to do, and so I was going to be obedient in following that. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He says, I wasn't disobedient. When God reveals Himself to you, when God gives you vision, when God puts a calling on your life, Christian, you must do it. We must respond to it. We must be willing to follow. And if you're saying, well, you know, I haven't heard. You know, I, I wasn't blinded on the road and given this very clear vision where I heard the Lord audibly speak to me. Well, maybe not. Paul is somewhat of a unique individual in terms of his encounter with the Lord. But God speaks. God speaks still. God speaks through His Word. And so if you're one who's saying today, I don't know what it is that the Lord wants me to do, well, then one of my first questions for you would be, are you in His Word? How frequently are you in His Word? Are you digging into His Word? Are you praying? Are you seeking Him in prayer, studying the Word, and allowing His Spirit to speak to you in that way? And then when He does, being willing to follow, being willing to be obedient 
like Paul was. We have a responsibility to respond to what God does in our lives. Anything less than that is rejection. So Paul says, I'm just doing what God has called me to do. Preaching a message of repentance. And it's for this that I'm being tried today, that they want to kill me. What he's essentially saying is all I'm doing is telling people that, hey, everything we've believed all along, it's fulfilled in Christ. And essentially, repent, live a good life pleasing to God, and look to the kingdom of heaven rather than this earth, and yet they want to kill him. He's confused. He's puzzled here before King Agrippa. Therefore, in verse 22, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. All I'm doing is simply proclaiming what the prophets have already said, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. I'm proclaiming truth. I'm teaching Scripture. And he knows and he understands, and we'll see that here shortly, that he knows that King Agrippa understands this too, that he's familiar with this. But before we get to that, I want us to look here at what he says in verse 22, having obtained help from God. Consider Paul's situation again, if you would. Where's Paul at? Prison. What are they trying to do to Paul? Kill him. He's standing there chained essentially pleading for his life, though he doesn't seem panicked about it because he knows God has him. He knows that the Lord's hand is upon him. But he says here that having obtained help from God, we could easily expect Paul to say, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me right now? Why am I still in prison? Why is this still going on? Why, Lord, why? But yet he says with confidence, God has helped me. And there's a couple of things we need to see there. One is the way in which God works the supernatural even in ordinary circumstances. Think back to when Paul's nephew brought word to him of over 40 individuals who wanted to take his life that resulted in the commander saying, we're going to send a whole garrison to surround you and lead you to Caesarea to keep you safe. So that would absolutely be one of those ways in which God had helped him and taken care of him. And a lot of times, folks, we miss that in our lives. We miss because such ordinary circumstances that may not make us feel super special or get goosebumps or whatever, is God working in our lives, working about circumstances to meet our needs and to take care of us. And so we too can trust that God is helping us. But more than this, I think we need to look at the situation Paul is in and do our best to try and say, Lord, give me that same perspective. Give me that same perspective that when in such a situation, I would be confident that God is with me and helping me. He's imprisoned. People want to kill him. And he is confident that God is at work. And I would ask you this, what is it that God is doing in your life today? Do you know? Do you see God at work? Are you missing even some of those small things that God is doing? Maybe you are in a situation where you are wondering and racking your mind for, why in the world am I in this situation? Lord, It seems like one trial after the other after the other is coming against me. I'm struggling. I'm not at peace. There's issues that I'm facing. There's health issues. There's financial issues. Whatever the case may be. And in the midst of that, we can be confident that if we are surrendering ourselves to the Lord, if we are seeking Him, that we are not in sin and disobeying what God has asked us to do, that if we are just 
doing our best to follow him, yet all of these things continue to come against us that we, like Paul, can say, hey, I'm confident God is helping me. God is working. He is moving. Maybe you need to ask, you know, what's the reason God has me in this place? Maybe I've missed something as it relates to what he wants from me or wants to do in my life. What have you prayed for, perhaps? Maybe this is you. Maybe this is resonating with you. And you need to remind yourself or you need to say, what have I prayed for recently in my life? What have I given the Lord permission to do in my life? Have I specifically prayed, Lord, I need to change? I'm too dependent on something? Lord, I'm not patient? Lord, give me patience? That's one of the best ones. I love it when I hear people say that they're praying for patience. I love it. You could almost have this little sinister laugh like, oh, just get ready. Well, that doesn't sound very pastoral. It's going to be a wonderful thing to see God work in your life because when you ask for patience, we always think God's just going to bless me with patience. Suddenly it's there. Oh, I'm just a more patient individual now. No, that's not how it works, folks. Because what God does is He's going to throw you into a situation where you have to learn how to be patient. And that same principle applies to all those other things that we may seek the Lord for, the fruit of the Spirit, whatever it is, that we want to demonstrate that more. Well, God's going to give you opportunity to practice that. So sometimes, too, when we're wondering, man, where is God in the midst of all this? Well, what have you asked for? What were you giving God permission to do in your life? Maybe He's doing it, and you just got a little distracted. In verse 24, Paul says, Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul! You are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And you see, sometimes to the world, what we believe, especially when people know us in our BC days before Christ, and then after, we seem mad to them. We seem like we have lost our minds. You may have family members who think you've lost it. You're one of those religious nuts now. And they just can't understand a word you're saying. See, Festus knew Paul was smart. He knew this is an intelligent individual. He had likely seen his study habits that Paul was regularly reading and writing. And he says to him, you've gone mad. Too much studying. You're just reading and reading and reading and you've just lost it, Paul. Here's the thing, too. There are some crazy Christians out there. Okay, there just are. Let's just be honest. Okay, I know a few. They might say the same thing of me. And I want to say to them, stop it. You're giving us all a bad name. Will you just stop? But what we believe, really, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And sometimes it makes me feel like I'm going to go crazy when others don't get it. When I want to make them understand, where I want them to see the truth of the gospel and understand that it makes perfect sense. From a spiritual perspective, from just an everyday perspective, from a scientific perspective, it all fits. But this reinforces them because they can't. They don't understand it. Their eyes are closed to it. Their eyes are blinded to it. They're in darkness. It's only going to be through the Holy Spirit working in their lives that they're going to come to an understanding. And so that's why it's so important that all we do for people is to give them the gospel. Give them Jesus. Just give them Jesus. More Jesus. More Jesus. More Jesus. Because that's the only thing that's ultimately going to work. Not our words. If we give them the gospel, the Holy Spirit can begin to work in their lives and to reveal things. Everything else we may try to do is just going to look stupid and foolish. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change hearts and minds. And so Paul says in verse 25, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. It is wits about him to flatter Festus there a little bit. But he says, but speak the words of truth 
and reason. This is truth and it is reasonable. And I challenge anyone who wants to say that it's not to do a thorough study and prove otherwise. Because it won't work. These are words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely. Now here it says again, before the king. I'm speaking freely before King Agrippa here, knowing that I've been called to this point. He knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And what he's referencing specifically is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying this wasn't hidden from him. King Agrippa knows. He knows not only the prophets and what was proclaimed and what was foretold, but he knows about Jesus Christ. He knows that he was crucified. He knows that he was resurrected. He knows it. And so in verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. See how bold he is here? This is for us also a great example of one who is presenting the gospel because they're giving him Jesus, and then at the end here is they're capturing their attention. They're saying, I know. I know the Spirit's working on your heart right now. I know that this is making sense to you. I'm not mad, Festus. I speak the truth. And with boldness now, Paul puts it right squarely before King Agrippa. As he says, you know. You know of the prophets. You know of the hope of the Messiah. You know about Jesus Christ. You know that prophecy has been fulfilled. You know, Agrippa, what I'm saying makes sense. I know that you believe this. And so just for us, the same thing, when we begin to see the Spirit, the Word of God gripping the heart of people, the Gospel beginning to change hearts and minds, that that's the moment when we strike where we say, this is making sense to you, isn't it? And we were there once too. Where for a long time the Gospel just seemed far off. It may have seemed foreign. It didn't make sense. Whatever the case may be for you as an individual, but there came a point where the Spirit got a hold of your heart. And you said, yes, I get it and I want that. And here we see in verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, some people here say that Agrippa is being sarcastic, and it could be. I wasn't there, right? But what I know of conviction, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is that it's powerful, and sometimes men resist it. And further, based on the response that we see from Paul, it seems that there was actually something happening here. But it's sad because like Felix who had said, go away, I'll call when it's convenient, that Agrippa too is close, but here's the thing, close is not good enough. You almost persuade me to believe. And it's so sad that there are so many who reach a place of almost, but almost isn't good enough. Sin, by definition, is missing the mark. And it doesn't matter if it's by one inch or a yard. It's still missing the mark. Many of you may have watched the Winter Olympics. There was a whole lot of people who almost got the gold medal, but we don't remember who they were. They didn't walk away with a medal because they were almost good enough. There's no almost in heaven. And I think there are people in the church today who are almost persuaded to believe. Their presence in church is such that they know it's a good thing to do. Their family wants them there. It seems to be working out well for them. There seems to be more stability at home, or it's just a kind of, you know, the message hey, it, it makes me feel good, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of different reasons why I think there are unsaved people in the church today who are almost there. There are others who may be saved in the church today, and, and hey, that's wonderful because 
through belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, through the forgiveness of your sins, you have eternal life with Him. But the sad thing about folks in that situation is that they say, well, hey, I'm just kind of comfortable right where I am. I got there. I said yes. I received Jesus Christ. The reality is there's so much that you're missing out on in terms of what God has for you and what He wants to do in you and through you. You know, it's almost like that God has taken you to this incredible five-star luxurious resort and said, hey, this whole thing's yours. And you go through that front door and you think, whoa, this is absolutely amazing. And then you just hang out right in the lobby. This is better than anything I've ever experienced before. This is way nicer than my house. I've never even seen a sofa like this. And there's just a bunch of them for all for us to sit on right here. There's a concierge that can answer your questions. This is amazing. I'm just going to stay right here. This is good. You don't even care to see the penthouse suite that you've been given that overlooks the water that has all these other resources and amenities. Now listen, lest you for a second think I'm teaching a prosperity gospel here, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to the penthouse. You're wrong. Okay, That's not the message. But why would we be content to just stay right there? I mean, that's close to the almost situation. And so my question for you today would be, where are you? Where are you in the midst of all of this? Are you almost persuaded to believe? And why did Agrippa stop short? Why was King Agrippa so close? So you almost persuade me. I would imagine it's no different than what we see today, that he had determined that the cost would be too great. What of his role as king? What of the followers that were there with him? What would they say? How would they react? What of the immoral relationship that he had with Bernice, who was there by his side? I didn't put much emphasis on, but is believed to have been an incestuous relationship with his sister. What of that? Where would he go? What would he have to do with that? The immediate costs were too great, most likely. But it's such short-sightedness. You know, we are so tied to this life. We are so tied to what we see as 70 to 80 years that we can sort of grasp it and look at it as the average lifespan of a human being, and then we fail in that to consider eternity. And this is true for the believer, too, that though we've received salvation, we're still so temporal. We still invest so much into this life rather than in the one to come. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And the just will appear before one throne of judgment and the unjust before another. Now trust me, you want to be appearing before a particular throne. There's a great white throne of judgment that will be for the unjust before they are cast into an eternity in the lake of fire. There's another throne where believers will appear before. And listen, we're all going to be praising God that we're there, that we're there together, that we get to spend an eternity with Him. But the reason we come before that throne is so that God can evaluate what we've done for Him in this life. There are rewards in heaven for that. If that sounds foreign to you, read it. It's in the Bible. And so what are we doing now? How are we living our lives for Him now? And here as Agrippa says, you almost persuade me. Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Paul absolutely had in mind that he wanted to convert King Agrippa. He probably thought if Agrippa gets saved today, oh man, what's going to happen to everybody else? 
That's going to be one of those big salvation moments. And he would have thought that others would follow. He said, I want everyone here today to be as I am, except for these chains. And that should be our heart. As believers, do we think that way? Do we want so badly for everyone around us to be saved, to know Jesus? Folks, I don't want a single person here today, or in our community for that matter, to fall short. I don't want any of you to be just inside the door and miss out on the rest of what God wants to do in your life. My hope and prayer today would be that we would all experience the fullness of what God has for us. That there would be absolute surrender. We read verse 30, When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see, they recognize here that there was no fault in Paul, that he hadn't done anything deserving of imprisonment, of these chains, or certainly of death. And even Agrippa says, Man, we could probably set him free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And do you think that Paul had in mind that he could have been free? Do you think at that moment Paul thought to himself, Oh, man! If only I'd have done this differently before, then I'd have just been able to walk out of here and go hang with my buddies. No. Now, maybe it crossed his mind every now and then. He's a man. But I would think here that Paul had in his mind, man, Lord, you are so good. I just had the opportunity to preach the gospel to a king. And now, just like you said, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to go before an emperor. And I'm going to preach Christ. Is that our hearts today? We will most likely never know a situation quite like Paul. But man, we can take his example and we can look at our own lives and we can say, am I that on fire? Do I love the Lord that much that no matter what's going on in my life, I can say, God is good. He is moving. He is working in my life. He's given me opportunities to testify of him, to share with others about Jesus Christ. I pray that that's our hearts. And that if we allow the Lord to do that work amongst us, imagine how that will feed. Imagine the Holy Spirit work in our midst in that way. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, an individual who undoubtedly had your hand upon him as you led him and guided him. And we have through your Holy Scripture today such accounts, Lord, that should give us understanding of how we're to live. It may be a different time, but there's nothing new under the sun. The commandment is still the same that we would go forth and make disciples of Christ, to preach the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who knows you but is falling short or intentionally stopping short of surrendering to you, of just saying, Lord, I know you, I've invited you in, but I realize I've been holding back, I've been resisting, that through your Spirit you'd work in their hearts here today and just help them to surrender, to surrender all that they could begin to just live a life completely sold out for you. If there's anyone here today who's almost believed and today they're at that place where they're saying, this makes sense. Through your Spirit, you've revealed yourself to them and they're beginning to grasp and understand that the Word has taken hold in their heart. And I pray that they would make it today. That if that's you, just simply pray along with me now. Heavenly Father, Lord, the gospel makes sense. That I recognize that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins. 
And I accept that forgiveness. And I invite Jesus Christ to come into my life, into my heart, to reign and to rule. And I give my life to you. That I surrender to you and ask that you would rule in my heart, that you would lead me each and every day moving forward, that I'd have eternal life with you. And that now as we sing and we rejoice and we praise Him, regardless of where we are, that we would be a people that today would sing from a place of surrender, just recognizing who God is in our lives, and we'd cry out to Him and say, thank you. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for all that you've done in our lives, all that you are doing, and all that you're going to do, Lord. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.